Welcome to This Time in History, guys. I'm Matthew, and with me today is my guest. His name is Dr. K. He's the professor of education, CEO of OnWatch TV, the founder of a nonprofit called SCORE, and the host of the podcast, Let's Chew the Gum. Dr. K, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much, Matt, for having me on the show. It's my pleasure. Looking forward to being on for some time now. Yeah, me too. I'm glad we got our schedules to um, uh, be able to do this because uh, I've, I've been really wanting to hear your story. Now, you and I chatted off air, but I can't wait for you to tell it to our listeners. So um, this is how it works. For any new listeners that are listening, uh, when I have a uh, guest, I let them tell their story in their own words, at their own pace. So, Dr. K, the floor is yours. You can start wherever you want. If you want to start from childhood, tell us uh, how you grew up, and then uh, you can get into whatever you want to talk about. Oh, sure. Well, first, I was born, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, man, no, honestly, that's where every story starts for everyone. I'm, I'm origi originally from Detroit, Michigan. That's where I was born and raised until uh, about the age of 15. And... Uh, at 15 years old, there was a, well, should I say when I was 15, um, at that time, there was a, a lot of disruptions to uh, the city of Detroit and, and a lot of inner cities across the United States with the crack epidemic that really uh, tore through communities with so many people becoming afflicted, addicted, or, or selling, but everyone affected uh, by that terrible, terrible uh, drug, which was the uh, impetus really for for uh, my mom to move from Detroit to save us. My, my, myself and my younger sister had five older siblings who were going to stay behind. But but uh, that was what was to save us from from that those perils. And so we moved across the country to South Central Los Angeles in the mid '80s. So that saved my life. Uh, usually, when I say that, people are kind of like amazed that I say it saved my life to move to South Central. <clears throat> Because as many of you that are listening know, in the mid-80s, South Central Los Angeles was a hub of uh, gang violence and also had its own issues with the afflictions of crack epidemic as well as other vices. So, um, But, you know, I, I'd, I'd say I was prepared in a sense because it was growing up in Detroit was pretty rough. And, and no matter where I grew up, you know, I don't want to paint the picture of doom and gloom. But those are the harsh realities that many people have had to, to overcome and many others have not overcome. Uh, but there was also always a lot of love and a lot of good days, a lot of sunshine with the rain. Um, so South Central L.A. is where I finished my teen years. Uh, went to high school there and um, having to navigate all those uh, situations. Actually ended up um, just a year and a half after I moved to South Central L.A. I ended up homeless um, while I was still in high school. So the end of my junior year and my entire senior year, I was homeless and pretty much on my own. My mom and uh, aunt were able to move uh, with another aunt, but uh, there was really no room for me there because there were so many other cousins that were living there as well as one of my uncles who occupied the house uh, with my aunt, actually, you know, brother, sister, aunt, uncle. Uh, so I was pretty much um, raising myself, man, in the, uh, people say in the streets, as, as people would say, but uh, doing what I had to do to survive, that's, that's been the... The main what's the main thing it has been just survival and getting through each day and uh, making each day count um so that's 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 
usually, you know, where I, where I start my story, obviously there's all type of intricacies in between there. Okay. Wow. Um, I can't wait to get into it. Let's, uh, let's talk about, um, I don't know. Where do you want to start? <laughs> well, I, well, I, well, I'll tell you, you know, well, I, I'll, I'll say that, you know, growing up in Detroit and, and South Central Los Angeles really um, helped to build my resolve and my character that I maintain today uh, because I've, I've always had to uh, work hard. I've never been afraid of, of hard work. Um, and later on, you know, I learned to work smarter than harder. But, you know, growing up in those areas, man, for a teenager, um, and I tell this story because I want, you know, folks to try to have some understanding about teens and people in general that may be going through situations, no fault of their own, um, for the sake of showing not just empathy, but the compassion to uh, intervene on, on the part of individuals, intervene in terms of uh, policies that are that are um, created to, you know, combat the, as I said, those ills of the inner city. So. You know, as I was homeless, 17 years old, man, I, I'm uh, trying to figure it out, you know, what, what life is going to be for me and, and how did I get into the situation. The whole time I'm, I'm missing being home like most teenagers, you know, you a lot of teens can just change a school across town and it seems like they're so far away from everything they know. But we transplanted, you know, 2,000 plus miles across the country. So I'm, I'm always having this, you know, this uh, feeling of, being a, a, a stranger, sort of in a, in a strange place, everyone spoke different. The culture was different. I'm having to maintain that, you know, um, navigate this. <clears throat> excuse me, homelessness, and uh, ended up when I was 17. I ended up uh, working in a nightclub of all places, a nightclub where you had to be 25 years old to just get in. And I'm 17. Um, I got this job. I looked pretty serious. Um, uh, I looked older, so they didn't ask for ID when I got the job. Actually, I don't know if they still do that in places, but uh, that's where I worked, man. Amongst you know all these adults who were 25 and older, I think the crowd was probably mostly 30 and over. Very mature situation, and I, and I thought I was pretty mature to handle it. You know, obviously I was not as mature as as the others, but it, it taught me a lot. And at the same time, you know, when it was done, as I reflected. I thought, you know, that wasn't the best situation to grow up in. But but I have no regrets. You know, you, you get one life, you don't know how the cards are dealt. And so that was the scenario. But um, that, you know, as much as it taught me and provided me an opportunity to, you know, take care of myself in terms of eating, right, just to be able to eat some days or buy some clothes or eventually my first car. Um, there was in my personal life outside of that, some strain because I'm still in high school, you know, I'm, I'm playing high school football, going through the, you know, the, the summer practices and, and that type of thing, that type of thing. Uh, so I had a pretty crazy schedule. Um, I went to school from eight to three and football practice from three thirty to five thirty, and then work from six o'clock until after two in the morning, sometimes well after two and then right back to work the next day at eight o'clock. Um, and that's that's a crazy schedule for anyone, but a, a young person whose brain is not fully developed as much as young people, as much as you, you think you, you got it all together and you know it all. I felt the same way, but, but science shows that we don't. We don't have it all together at that age. Our brains are still developing. Rest is crucial and critical to that development. And uh, 
proper nourishment. And I don't think I was getting any of that. Now, eventually, consequently, I, I started falling falling asleep in class every day, man. It was I couldn't stay awake. You know, I'm, I'm, this life cycle, I wasn't staying able to stay awake. It was a pretty rigorous class. And I was a pretty smart guy, man. But um, it was uh, it came to a point where teachers started to take notice that I was falling asleep in class. Um, and the sad part for me, I always tell folks when I tell the story is that no one ever asked me, was I okay? What's wrong? You know, why are you falling asleep? They just said I was another lazy inner city kid that didn't care. And when I say they, not all teachers, I had some fabulous teachers in high school that really helped to propel me in, into the, the next stage of my life. Shout out to teachers like, uh, Miss Patricia Bayard. I haven't talked to her in, in years, but you know, she's one that was very instrumental uh, in my life. And there are many others. I could, Jerome Evans and others, Coach Garrett, uh, coach of uh, Crenshaw High School football team, still there today. Folks like that. Um, but yeah, so, you know, they're saying I'm falling asleep and I don't care, which was, again, far from the truth, man. I'm, I'm coming to school despite this lifestyle of navigating, you know, gang violence and drugs and, and women and all just just the vices of, of life. I'm showing up. And uh, it got to a point um, where I was actually going to drop out of high school, I thought. You know, I wasn't feeling like I was getting the support there, the understanding, again, a different land, a different language in a sense, and uh, going through all these things. Um, eventually, it you know, it uh, started with me having to quit my passion, which was football, man. I, I love football. I, I, I tend to think I would have been an NFL Hall of Famer by now. Who knows what happens along the way? You never know. But I was pretty, pretty good, not to blow my own horn, but I was pretty good, man. I was, I was strong, fast. And just had a, an instinct for the game, and, and I love football to this day. Shout out Detroit Lions, all Lions all day. No Lions, I mean no 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 Bears. Oh, we're Lions, gonna no we're gonna fight. I'm a big Colts fan. Uh, no, no, so we don't have to fight because that's a different division, right? Out of the division, that's cool. That's a, you know, if we go to the Super Bowl together one day, you know, so we're not rivals, but. Lions, Tigers, no Bears for me. All right, <laughs> and definitely no Packers. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I had to had to had to quit football, man. Um, I went and talked to my coach, and, and he didn't know I was homeless. No one knew because I didn't can mention I, it. Sorry, can I ask you? Was that your decision, or was that a decision based on uh, your grades slipping? No, no, my grades were my grades were, were good enough to uh, to maintain that. Um, it was pretty much a, a decision that um, that my coach helped me to realize um you know we we had talks um and i had i think i started missing a practice here or there because i was just exhausted man i couldn't you know keep it up and finally i went and uh, talked to him about it and uh just said man i'm homeless here's my situation i'm working i'm going to school something has to give i can't at this time i'm not thinking about dropping off but i can't stop going to school um, I definitely can't stop working. I got to, you know, I need to eat. <clears throat> I think by this time I had um, started paying for a small apartment with uh, my sister who had moved out here. Um, and it was just a, a place to sleep, really. Um, and I could not, you know, want something I had to give. So it was football. And I remember, you know, to this day, him taking me in front of the whole team to have this discussion. And I don't know why he did this, man, but he put his hand on my shoulder. He walked me into our meeting room. It was just a classroom. He said, I want to show you guys the definition of a man. Something to that effect. And I was like, wow, I wasn't expecting that. You know, he wasn't apt to give out compliments all the time. You know, he was a loving coach, a caring coach, but, you know, hardcore, man. 
and he just let me know how he appreciated me and was proud of me for, you know, making the decisions I needed to make and that he understood. And so, you know, no more football. Uh, soon after that, the apartment my sister was in, that was lost. Um, so I'm, I'm sleeping in my car now um, or wherever I can sleep over some random person's house or friend's house every once in a while or under the table at my aunt's house if I could, you know, sometimes, you know, whatever. <clears throat> um car ended up breaking down so now I'm riding the bus a lot to go to sleep on buses but um yeah and and, and then all of those all of that pressure is what led me to consider dropping out of school I was just done I thought man I need another job um that that uh Christmas of that year my job uh closed for Christmas they never opened back up so now I don't have that job <laughs> they they still owe me money man they never paid the they never they gave us a great party on Christmas and then they uh, closed down. So, yeah, man. So um, I was going to drop out of high school. I was done. And uh, some counselor, and shout out to all the counselors and educators who intercede, because there are some, as I said, some counselor that wasn't even mine saw me one day walking through the quad. And she comes up to me and she's like, you know, what in the hell are you doing? You know, you're three months away from graduating and your grades, my grades started to drop again. Your grades are dropping. And what are you doing? And I, I just didn't care. Um, and I told her I would get it together, but honestly, when I left that meeting with her, I kind of fell back into my way of, you know, I started not going to school because some other situations that happened were, <laughs> it's a whole other story, man. I had to go back to school again. I, I was a senior twice. <laughs> the second time around, I wasn't feeling it because I had to take all these uh, classes with sophomores. Long story short, I moved from Detroit to California. They, they put me up in the 11th grade when I was only in the 10th in Detroit. I'm thinking I'm graduating early. It was happy days. Well, at the end of that senior year, class of 88, they told me, well, um, you know, you never did the 10th grade. I said, yeah, I, I know. Uh, they told me I was in the 11th. They're like, no, you got to do these credits. So I had to go and tell all my friends that I was going to graduate with. I'm not graduating. I had to go back the next year and to retake all those sophomore classes. So uh, it was, it was I, I wasn't feeling it, man. So eventually, though, um, somehow, I started thinking about my mom at that at that point my siblings older than i had not graduated from high school they dropped out and they've gone on to do great things professional things and gotten advanced degrees all those types of things now but at that time no one had graduated high school and i thought you know my mom is going through a lot she sacrificed a lot i'm gonna do it for her at least she'll have one child that she can say graduated so that's what you know um got me to the point of motivating myself to graduate because I didn't care really at that time. So every day when I got up, it was about, I'm doing this for mom. Every day that I, you know, it got hard. I was, it was, I'm doing it for my mother. So great. Thankfully, you know, I, I finished and, you know, she uh, was able to come to the graduation. And, and uh, so life was uh, looking up. I thought. Wow. That is, uh, <sighs> I, I'm struggling to find the words. That's a great story, and um, wow. Um, so you you did graduate, and um, did you end up going to college, or that was it? You just went into the workforce. Well, I actually um, was accepted to two colleges: Cal State Northridge, and then my dream college, which was Tuskegee University. I was accepted to both. I had written to Tuskegee as a junior and told him I wanted to come there. And they said, hey, when you're a senior, apply. I applied and I got in. Um, and the only thing I had to do was to pay some, I think, 
pay some money for housing or some other fees um, that fall. Um, so after after graduating, I uh, ended up going back to Detroit for the summer. You know, I've been there some time and got a Greyhound ticket to go back to Detroit just to visit family and, and you know, just take a, a break from all I had just gone through. This was like a few years of trauma for me. So while I was in Detroit, I had been waiting for, you know, my papers from the university to, uh, to from Tuskegee University so I could, you know, pay the fees or whatever. And um, it started getting late in the summer and I'm, I'm calling back to California to my aunt's house. I used her address. You know, I was I didn't live there. I was homeless. Um, but I was calling my mom there to see, you know, if the papers had arrived, you know, because I, I think I got in a call or contacted them and I knew they were coming up due soon. I said, Mom, excuse me. <coughs> looking for this paper from the university. Um, is it there? She couldn't find it anywhere. I don't know, um, up, up in Canada, in the north, I don't know if you guys have a, you know, we have something we call a junk drawer. You guys have that junk drawer, like yes. in your kitchen. You, yeah, yes. so, right, so she was looking around, couldn't find it, and then she, by some chance, looked in the junk drawer, and there the letter was. One of my cousins had just got the letter and sort of discarded it into the junk drawer where all everything else was all the screwdrivers and paper clips and any random thing you might find or can't find is in there. And so she opened it and she's like, I'm like, when's the deadline? You know, she said the deadline is today. Like the day she opened the letter, it had been there for about three weeks, maybe. And, uh, she didn't have the money. I didn't have the money for sure. My dad didn't have the money. So I wasn't going to be going to college that fall. Um, it was just the money needed to be there that day. Um, and so that was a big letdown for me. I thought I worked hard. I was looking forward to to going there. And so I ended up coming back to Los Angeles because my mom and sister were there. I could have stayed in Detroit, you know, but my mom and sister are still in L.A., my younger sister. So I came back just to really be homeless. You know, the first night back in town, I'm, I had some money. I went and got a motel room um, and, um, you know, thought I'd work until I uh, – I'm able to, you know, get the money to go back to college maybe in the spring. Well, that turned into, some, into days and days into weeks. I'm working odd jobs here and there, wherever I can. I don't know if it's McDonald's or, you know, hustling in the streets or whatever. Living in motels some nights if I can. Eating out of, you know, coolers with lunch meat and cheese that's, you know, weathered and watered down because the ice melted. You know, having to buy ice or get ice. And that was pretty rough. I'm, I'm back on the streets again, man. And, I, you know, I had some guys who you know, offered, you know, uh, that I knew there were drug dealers and, and pimps and just people, you know, who, who were offering me that opportunity, you know, Hey, you don't have to be poor and, and homeless, man. You can make a lot of money here. You can run this house of prostitution. You can sell these drugs and, you know, being living in the streets and growing up in that environment, I, I knew all about those things. I knew what to do, how to do, but it was never something that was, um, a part of my, my makeup. It was it was the antithesis, you know, against everything that I really believed in, because, as I said before, crack cocaine destroyed many cities. It destroyed parts of my family. And I was very much against that. Definitely um, was um, against that. But I ended up staying at, at a friend, the free guy's place where he was operating his house of prostitution. I don't know what other word to call it. They call it maybe a trap house today. I don't know. Yeah, but, something um, like that. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and he was kind of preparing me to take over this house. And, and I don't think I was that excited about it. I was, you know, thrilled by the fact that it was a very nice home. 
I could find a place to sleep. I wasn't on the streets. You know, there was food there. And he started prepping the situation for me to take over, telling the, the girls there that I'm going to be the guy and you listen to me. And, you know, he's trying to get them to perform sexual favors for me. And I was like, I'm, I'm good. You know, it, it felt demeaning to me, to them. And, um, you know, I'm not placing judgment on anybody, man. That just wasn't my thing. So I, so I didn't do that. But it got so bad, man. I was in the streets. I'm down to my last bit of money. And um, I decided that, you know what? I'm seeing all these folks with lots of money, like fat wads, $100 bills every day, going everywhere, buying everything they want. I'm tired. I can I can sell sell these drugs. I know just where to sell it. You know, I already know people that, are, that buy it. I'll, I'll be successful. And I'll do that until I get to college. I got to a very low point, man. So I decided to become a drug dealer against uh, all odds, man. And uh, from the very start, it pained me, but I thought, you know, it's a matter of survival. You know, there's no other options. There's no jobs. I have a girlfriend and, and there's pressure. And, and uh, so I, I uh, got the drugs and I went to, you know, what they call a crack house where it was already set up where lots of people were there. And just within minutes, man, I started to reflect on, you know, who are these people here? You know, there's adults, you know, this could be the mailman or an attorney or a judge or doctors or all kind of people, man. There were grown people that I thought should have been leading me and, and helping to provide guidance for me to get to the next point in my life. But they're there, you know, in a sense, bowing down to me because I have drugs that they want and they're highly addicted and would do a lot, whatever for them. Um, and I'm sitting there watching this, them do what they do. And I'm, uh, started thinking about my grandmother, man, who invested so much time into me. She's born in 1895, man. She was 70 years old already when I was born. And she just, invested a lot in me man a lot of faith a lot of values and morals and ethics and i thought man what would she think right now if she saw me you know and i thought you know about my whole family aunts and uncles who invested you know great people with great stories of of, of overcoming uh, challenges in life and i started started to get embarrassed of myself internally and i thought man if, if this place is rated right now what's going to be the narrative it's not going to say, man, here's a kid who had a tough break. You know, he overcame homelessness. He you know, did all he did, could do to graduate high school, worked hard. He's a good kid from a good family. No one would say that. It would be just what folks said when I was falling asleep in class. Another inner city black kid that doesn't care. Lock him up, you know, a minister society. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, that affected me deeply. So at that moment, I decided I was done. I was done, so I took the rest of the drugs I had and I started to crumble them up in the toilet. It was just like I'm done. And folks are, you know, trying to get me to continue and said, you know, we're gonna get high anyway. You might as well make your money here. And I thought you probably will, but it won't be from me, man. So I walked out and left. So I was a drug dealer for 15, 20 minutes tops. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and and but but still, even in that, there's some some responsibility and accountability I can take because who knows if someone in there that day was their first time and, and they became addicted. And how their life turned out or what effect i had if any so i like to forgive myself for that for being young naive desperate stupid whatever um, but i walked out man in desperation and still i'm homeless i'm like i gotta get out of here i gotta get out of this city it's just tearing me apart i don't know where to go what to do i had no more money um and uh, as a matter of fact i still hold the drug dealer for the, what i did buy because i you know he kind of gave me some in advance i'm so i have to pay that back um and i ended up walking around the street and somehow I ended up on Florence and uh, Vermont in Los Angeles, South Central. There's a military recruiter station there 
it was before the riots burned down in the riots. I was there during the LA riots also, but it burned down during the riots. This had to be 19, this is the end of 19, no, this is 1990, early 1990. And uh, I say, I, I'm going to join the military. That's one way I can get off the streets. Maybe that's just what I'll do. And I had never wanted to join the military, man. <clears throat> I wanted to go to college. I thought, well, I'll, I'll find a branch that you know, has, has lots of great schools, you know, it's technically sound because I was going to go into engineering. Um, and so I went in and I tried to go to the Air Force, actually. Um, so I called them first. Um, but they had a waiting list, like six month waiting list. I thought, I, I don't I don't have six months. Yeah, I definitely didn't want to go to the Marines or Army because I wasn't ready. I didn't want to want to fight. I wanted to go to school. I don't mean so to. I, well, the, I don't mean to interrupt you, but you're crackling a little bit. Oh, am I? How's it now? Still crackling? No, that's good now. Yeah. Okay, maybe I was I was too close to the microphone. I, I apologize. <laughs> so, uh, do I need to repeat anything? No, no, you're good. Okay. Yeah. So they had a waiting list. I'm like, I know I don't have six months. So I decided, you know, I called the Navy up and. You know, they had pretty good schools. I didn't want to go, though, because I couldn't swim. I'm thinking that's a lot of water. <laughs> Just going to the Navy, I know there's going to be some swimming involved. Uh, but um, that was where I went. I went to this inside and told him, I said, hey, how soon can you get me off the streets? How soon can I be out of here? Don't, you know, don't tell me all the lies that I'm going to be rich. Because, you know, recruiters would tell you a lot of things. Oh, you'll be rich. You'll make lots of money. There'll be women in every, you know, <clears throat> every part of the earth. And, you know, I don't want, I'd, I'd heard those stories. So I said, don't tell me any stories, man. Just how soon can I get off the streets? He says, you know, kind of shocked. He says, well, if everything works out, I think he said maybe something 10 to 14 days. I said, done, let's do it. So I went through the process and within a couple of weeks, I was on a plane for the first time in my life, flying to boot camp, and I, I didn't even get a chance to tell everybody I was leaving. It was that quick, you know. Um, I didn't tell anybody that I would that I had even made that decision. My mom, not my sister, you know, my girlfriend maybe was the first to know. Um, some of my friends, my closest friends, I didn't even get a chance to tell them. Um, there was even some resentment behind that with one of my friends when I came back, like I left them, you know, but I had to, it was, uh, had to survive, man. So ended up going to the military, uh, was an electronics technician and, um, that was going great until I came back to California, uh, which I came back, I could have gone anywhere in the world, man. I, I think I finished 14 out of 300 people in my class with electronics techs and, uh, got to choose. It was Rome and Japan and, all these other places, man, Hawaii and Guam that I could have gone to, but my mom and sister are still in California, in Los Angeles, and, and you know, my, my sister's in high school now, and I know what the streets are like, and I'm like, I need to be as close as I can to look out for them, so I ended up going to uh, San Diego um, to a uh, to a sub base, and that was that was treacherous, man, so I don't know if, how much time we even have. I, I'm here now doing all these things and you know, with the television channel and, and a podcast and a nonprofit organization, and I teach high school and I'm a professor, but we haven't even got out of out of my twenties, early twenties yet. I don't know what we have for time. Uh, we we're we're good, but uh, you know, uh, we can always split it into two because it sounds like you have so many stories. Um, but you, you can uh, keep keep going. Tell me about uh, San Diego, about the about the base. Oh, sure, man. So, so I get there. I'm, I'm excited, man. I'm, I'm thrilled. I, I loved everything I'd done in the Navy, man. You know, 
all the camaraderie, meeting new folks, um, people I hadn't associated with before, you know, different ethnic groups that I had t- traditionally had not been around, just getting to know people. Um, so I loved it. I got to, got to the ship there. Um, well, I guess I have to, to, to go here. The first day I got back into town, before I even go to the ship, I just, I'm visiting my mom. I drive back to, across the country, I drive from uh, Virginia back to uh, California, and I decide I'm going to stop and see my mom. I had my wife and daughter were in California. I didn't say that. I got married by then, had a daughter. Um, so I'm going back to see them and my mom, and I'm in Los Angeles. Um, and that very day, the L.A. riots break out. The very day I come back, I'm at my mom's house um, watching the news because I think the trial was on news, you know, that they were broadcasting. And uh, we're all sitting there and we hear, you know, we'd all seen the videos. You know, I was very familiar with that type of treatment by the police. I had been a victim of that same type of deal, not beating the way Rodney King was beaten, but just the abuse, the, the, the disregard for, you know, Right, you know, when I was in high school in LA, you know, frequently we were pulled over by police, put on the curb, and pushed around, and threatened, and guns pulled out on us. And we were good kids, man. You know, um, the worst thing I did happened after high school, which was that 15-minute drug selling thing. But I was terrible. But no, other than that, man, we, you know, went to school and played. We played basketball. We'd go to different places. We, you know, my particular group of friends. A lot of bad people, but that wasn't us. But we we're just thrown in a lump, man. It was really embarrassing. You know, you see your teachers and friends and other folks driving by. You're on the curb with your hands locked behind your back and police are searching the car. It's embarrassing because people automatically assume that you've done something wrong. Mm-hmm. And and I can say maybe 50 times within three years that that happened to us. If you ever see the movie Boys in the Hood, you know, that's, that's sort of the life that uh, it looked like someone went around with the camera and filmed us in our in our situation. That was a very real, real authentic movie. Uh, but anyway, that day when the right when I met my mom's, we hear the verdict not guilty. And I, like many people, especially those who have experienced those injustices, just kind of sank back and I'm like, I can't believe it. Are you kidding me? Now we'd always told people how we were treated by police at that time. No one would believe us. People didn't believe it. You know that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. But that. Rodney King tape showed that it did. And for that verdict to be read back as, as not guilty, it was overwhelming. So much so I remember just, just like walking out of the house, like, Mom, I, I got to, you know, get some air. Like it took the breath away from me. Um, and I told my wife, I, I got to get some air. I got to I gotta go. I didn't know where I was going. I was, I was bewildered, just in a trance. So I go outside and at that same time, I'm seeing so many people on this block all walking outside like me. I think it had a similar effect on so many people simultaneously. It was it was crazy. It was like almost there wasn't a sound in the neighborhood. We're talking South Central LA, but you could just like you could hear for miles. You could hear the murmurs of people. You could hear people just being disgusted, you know, saying things like, you know, no, this is not gonna work. I can't believe this. Not again type deal. And people were just trickling out into the streets automatically bewildered like I was I got in my car and just I, was, I just decided I need to drive I need to get some air and uh I remember I had a CB in my in my car so I could hear the truck drivers start talking about um if you're going through uh South Central LA do not get off the freeway 
I think they were reporting the Reginald Denny beating, you know, a truck driver who had gotten uh, assaulted on the corner of Florence and Normandy when he was pulled out of his truck. And uh, they were saying, especially if you're white, I remember this distinctly, do not get off the freeway, stay on the freeway, right? Don't get off the freeway in South Central. So I'm getting the news real time from truck drivers, you know, that's sort of our, our Twitter of the day, who's the CB. And at that same time, I'm, I'm driving around the city and I'm seeing things unfold. I'm seeing the looting and the burning already starting. I'm seeing all of this, you know, the, the, the police standing by while people are looting because there's so many people who are upset. Not just black. There's, you know, black, white, brown, Asian, Puerto Rican, whatever group, white, everybody's out. Um, and it was it was it was it was it's almost indescribable. Now, your audience may not grasp this the way that I want them to. And some of them might, and, and people have different reactions when I say this, but I describe it as the most peaceful day that I've ever seen in South Central Los Angeles. And people are like, how can you say that? But for me as a young African-American, it was the first time ever in Los Angeles where I could go anywhere and there was no distinction about colors, no gang violence, no crips, no bloods, no essays. Everybody was just kind of collectively together um but i saw a lot of a lot of what was happening i have pictures of it still i took pictures of people it was crazy things and people take giant refrigerators and try to put them on the back of a little chevy chevette you know it's twice as big as a car um and i'm not making light of it man but that was a reaction of people and that's the kind of thing that happens when people's voices are not heard when people feel like they aren't heard and they've tried and tried and you know they feel like they have no recourse you know that's that's sort of what happens and we've seen it throughout society so i don't make any apologies for for folks actions but before any listeners email me or call me and ask me no i didn't loot i didn't i didn't loot anything that's not my style man that's not how i was raised so i just kind of you know drove around observing but i, I didn't loot anything um so at that time, again, I was supposed to go to my ship the next day. And uh, I remember calling the ship and telling them, hey, have you heard there's a riot? I can't report it. I think that's what I said. I can't report to my ship. I said, what do you mean? I said, well, there's a riot. They hadn't known, right? There was no CNN, you know, 24-hour ticker type deal at that time. They didn't even know yet. And I right. said, well, turn the television on, you know, turn on the TV. There's a riot happening in Los Angeles. And and, and there were skirmishes. I, they had to have known something, but they didn't know what they told me. I said, and they said, well, you got to get down here. You got to report. And I was like adamant. I'm not leaving my wife and daughter in this situation. You know, by this time, I think this may have been day, the same night. I don't know, maybe the second day, but they had started instituting curfews. They were cutting off um, electricity in certain neighborhoods. Which I don't know how that was affecting the riot, cutting off water, um, um, gas in some places. Um, and uh, it was pretty bad. And so that's no place to leave a, a wife and a young baby. So I, I wasn't going to do it. I was willing to take the consequences of my actions. But I was trying to plead to their, you know, more humane side to understand that, you know, you they can't leave my family. So they said, well, you know, we'll give you a few days, you know, to for things to settle down. And it didn't settle down in a few days. It may have been a few, a few more days. But I think I ended up going to the ship maybe four days, three or four days after my report date. Mm -hmm. And... uh when I got there, the first thing they said was, uh, they gave me a drug test. I don't know. I didn't show up. You know, apparently when you <laughs> don't show up, you're late. You get a drug test. You must be on drugs to be late. So I had to take a drug test, which was whatever. I, I thought it was weird. And then I, you know, got into my, you know, um, sort of the 
introduction to the ship, yada, 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 excited about that. And now I'm having to find a place to stay for my family. I go to, to the ship um, each morning for muster, which is like a taking attendance, right? Um, and folks get their duty for the day. Well, I was going in and they knew I was looking for an apartment, so they would let me go. Like other sailors, let them go, hey, go find your apartment and come back. Um, so I was doing that. I did that for, you know, maybe a, a week each day, come in, go out, try to find a place, you know, getting acclimated, doing my my quals on the ship and whatnot. And then uh, one day, the division officer, he told the uh, my immediate supervisor, give him maximum liberty so he can find a place because it was difficult to find a place. My wife is kind of picky like many people. She just didn't want to just stay anywhere. And I don't know the San Diego area that much, you know. Uh, so it took some time. So once he said, give him maximum liberty, I'm like, okay, good. I'll have some time. I don't have to worry about coming back at a certain time. I can use that time to find a place. So about four or five days, um, I come back after we found a place. And then they said, where were you? <laughs> I said, what do you mean where was I? I was looking for an apartment. Well, why didn't you show up? I said, well, the division officer said to give me maximum liberty so I could go and find a place where that just meant you're supposed to show up each day and then leave. I said, well, that's what I was already doing when he said give maximum liberty. So I don't know, was it lost in translation? Apparently so for this person, you know, it was their interpretation that I was supposed to come every day and then leave like I always was. And this phrase of give maximum liberty was nothing that was different. So drug test, give them a drug test. <laughs> This is amazing. They like drug testing. I don't know. Maybe they were sponsored by some drug test. No, I'm just a joke there. But so I go and take this drug test, and um, then uh, I have to go to what's called captain's mass because they had written me up as AWOL, absence without authorized leave. So I have to go to captain's mass, which is which is like a for those that don't know, it's like going to court on your ship, you know, and the captain will decide. So I'm thinking, oh, he, he, no big deal. You know, yeah, he'll understand this. This is simple, you know. So I go to I go to Captain's Mass, and uh, he says, uh, "What happened?" And I said, well, "Explain to just like I explained to you." Blah 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 blah. Maximum liberty. I thought I was supposed to come back when I was done. And he sits there and he says, "Um, <clears throat> okay." He says, "He told me." He says, "You know, you have a fraudulent enlistment." And I thought. What, what, what is that even? How, what, is, what do you mean? I'm a fraudulent enlistment. Like, I'm not who I say I am. I'm, I'm trying to search. And he goes, well, you received a traffic ticket when you were 17 and you didn't pay it. So I wasn't apparently wasn't supposed to be able to allowed in the military with an outstanding ticket. I remember when I got that ticket in Los Angeles. I was 17, walking from high school to catch the bus, Crenshaw on 43rd Street, going right past McDonald's. I walk into the intersection, I get into the middle of the intersection, and the light starts flashing, don't walk, don't walk. I was already in the middle. A motorcycle officer pulled me over on the side, and I explained to him, oh, officer, I was already in the middle when it started flashing, and he gave me a ticket. Well, I was homeless again, man. I, I wasn't even working at that time, didn't have money to pay, and I don't know if I how much as a 17 year old i haven't thought about that ticket um anymore how much was the ticket well i i, I could not remember but 
you know, just imagine any ticket today that is compared to the income you have too much. How about that? I don't remember exactly. You know, that was so many years ago, but I know I did not have the money. It was like, no way. Like, am I going to eat or pay this ticket? Or, you know, I hadn't even gotten that nightclub job yet. And by the time it came around, I think, I, I don't know, did I forget about the ticket? Uh, probably. But the fact is, that was a fraudulent enlistment. And I'm thinking, okay, well, I can pay the ticket. He goes, well, no. He says, uh, you can either uh, go to CC, we're going to send you to CC, or you can get out of the military. Now, CC is like a corrective boot camp. That's where folks go who are derelicts, who've gotten in trouble for major things, to be retrained about their military bearing and the military weight. I didn't have those issues. I had great service. Um, and what I knew about CC, someone had mentioned that I happened to have, to have talked about it, was when you go, you have to you lose all your stripes. All your rank is gone. You start over. And so for me, as an electronics technician, I was already an E4, Petty Officer Third Class. Um, I would have been down to a seaman, which is just like an entry. Which means in my shop, I would have probably never worked on electronic equipment again. I would have been like a shop boy, like clean up the, the floor, um, a pretty much a custodian. And I thought, I'm not doing that. I worked hard, man. I, you know, I finished 14th in my class. I was a, a A1 type electronics technician, could troubleshoot, and it was pretty great. And, and and so if you don't have that rank, you might be in there 20 years at that level, which is a reduction in pay, a reduction in status, a reduction, period. And I thought, there's no way. There's people that, that would, like I said, could have been 20 years before I got to that rated rank again. And uh, I had been going through, like I said, a lot of the stress, all those years of homelessness and police brutality, the L.A. riots, and had been missing my wife and daughter. And I had been in a few years now, and I said, um, sir, I said, I, I think with the current stress that I'm under, I think um, I just would choose to get out. I wasn't going to do CC. He looked me dead in my eye, and he said, good, because we don't want your kind around here anyway. That's not. And I thought. But I don't even think I took it at the, as a racial thing at the time. And I just was like, wow. He says, uh, we don't want you kind of around here anyway. And he hits the gavel and says, 45 days, no, says 45 days extra duty, 45 days restriction. Meaning now I'm arrested to the ship for 45 days. I can't leave the ship. My wife and daughter are out in town waiting for me to come home. Um, I can't... Uh, leave the ship and I, and I have extra duty meaning after my work day I have to go and do labor as a crime you know and I'm thinking what I'm like bewildered like what is this this ship at the time was the, the only uh, type of ship that had females on board it was called a submarine tender you know we repaired the equipment on subs and you know offloaded the uh, nuclear arms etc cetera, etc cetera. my job was to repair their you know the, the test equipment that they would use to test the uh, functions of the submarine um so this was the only ship where there were females and there was one girl and I didn't know anybody, but um, I don't know if she heard about what happened or if I was talking to someone that she overheard and she kind of pulled me to the side and she says, you know, anytime black people get on this ship, they always try to get them off. It's a very racist ship. And I thought, ah, this is before the trial, actually, before the cat, because I was thinking, ah, I'm not even putting any, any uh, value into that. But I'm kind of, I did hear her. I thought, okay. But now it's coming to fruition. They are trying to get rid of me. He did say he didn't want my kind around here. And I have no recourse. So during those 45 days on the ship, 
I'm like, wow, man, I, I had a great time in the military and not just fun, but I mean, learning and, and devoting myself to my craft, you know, understanding the ins and outs. Um, so I'm working every day on the ship. I have to call my wife and tell her I can't come home. I won't see my daughter for 45 days because I showed up late and I had a traffic ticket when I was 17. Um, based upon someone telling me maximum liberty and I misunderstood it, I suppose. But during this time, I had, you know, previous prior to this, I had a, suffered a back injury um, when I was in Florida uh, playing basketball. And so I was restricted in terms of the type of duties that I could do. So I could do, you know, uh, what do you call it, uh, my job. Mm -hmm. But as far as manual labor, I couldn't do it. Well, some of the extra duty was manual labor. You know, I think we ended up chipping paint um, on the ship. That was my duty, tearing up grout or whatever and, and lounges, just whatever kind of work needed to be done. And then you go to, to PE, exercise. Well, I had a, a it's called a CHIT, C-H-I-T, a document stating no extra, no type of strenuous activity like that for me. So when the, everybody finished working and they went to do their exercises, I stayed behind. I went to the birthing area where my, you know, where my rack is, where we sleep. And just next to my rack is the telephone. So I could reach the phone from my rack. So I thought, you know, I'll just call my wife. We're done for the day. They're exercising. I'll call my wife. So I sit on my, my rack and I'm talking with my wife, you know, miss you, talk to my daughter. You know, she's a baby, one or two. She didn't really talk too much, but, uh, well, she's talking enough. But <laughs> anyway, at that moment, one of the um, master at arms, those are like the police in the military on the ship, they come in. He goes, what are you doing on your rack? What are you doing on the phone? I'm talking to my wife. Well, what are you doing on your rack in your uniform? What am I doing on my rack? Well, you know, so in that's in other words, why am I sitting on my bed in the uniform? I didn't call it a bed then, though. And he goes, you are not allowed to be in your on your rack in uniform. I thought, what? Now, I had never been on a ship before. I've been, you know, other duty stations. I had never heard of that. Just some rude making up for me. What? And he goes, I'm writing you up. I said, writing me up? Um, and he had asked me why I, why I was not with everyone else. I said, well, I, I don't exercise. I have this chit. I can't do the physical exercises. Well, I'm writing you up. Come down to the office. So I go down the office. I was written up for disobeying the direct order of a superior officer. He's barely a rank above me, but, you know, he's superior. I don't know what I disobeyed. I didn't go exercise. But I have this document from a doctor saying that I can't. Did not know I wasn't supposed to be on my rack. So guess what? I'm going back to captain's mast. I have to go back to see the captain about this infraction, sitting on my rack in my in my uniform, and not working out. And I'm and I, I hadn't even after the captain had said we don't want you kind of around here. I'm still thinking, you know, reason should prevail. I, I don't know why I was so optimistic in that. I'm thinking, you know, the captain, you know, he'll understand. This is nonsense. Why would he? Why would somebody even waste his? If anything, he's going to be upset at the officer wasting his time to bring me back before him for this nonsense. I go to captain's mask explain what happened. I didn't know I wasn't supposed to be on my bed in the uniform. So for all those out there, I don't know if it's still a thing, but don't be in your uniform and sit on your bed. Don't do that. Um, and definitely, you know, this document that I have that limits my physical activity is going to be, you know, sufficient. I go there. He goes, three days in the brig, bread and water. Boom, hits the guy. Well, now I'm arrested. Now you're going to put me in jail, man. For three days with nothing but bread and water. I, I didn't even know they still did that. I, you know, I thought that was like, you know, Blackbeard, the pirate, Popeye days. I'm like, bread and water in the in jail? In the brig? I'm like, what? So they, they locked me up, man, like a common criminal with, in chains, arms, and legs, and walked me off the ship. 
it's embarrassing, right? It took me right back to South Central LA with police, you know, unjustly, uh, you know, arresting folks and abusing our rights. They walked me off the ship in chains, man, and took me to, uh, uh, what is that movie, Top Gun? It's filmed at NAS Miramar Naval Air, Naval Air Station at Miramar. They take me there. I also had a chit, you know, black guys, some of us can't shave like everybody else. We get all these irritating bumps because our hair is curly and grows in. So many of us would have a document that we didn't have to shave with the razor so close so that our hair follicles don't curl back in and irritate the skin. Mm-hmm. We use clippers. So they tell me I had to shave. And I'm like, no, nah, I have this chit. I don't, you know, that says I don't have to. Well, no, you're going to shave. And they forced me to get a razor and use this razor on my skin, which really messed me up. They stripped me naked in front of in just this room and like just searched me with all these folks watching, man. And they threw me in a little tiny cell. And my choice was, do you want white bread or wheat? <laughs> you know, I was pretty <laughs> smart. I chose wheat. <laughs> Need oh, some nutrients. God, so I, I am chose s- the wheat bread. This is, but, but this is demoralizing. I'm, I'm making light of it a little bit because of the, the trauma that's still there from it. Um, but uh, it's demoralizing, man. You know? Carried off like a criminal for what? Embarrassed in front of my peers, you know, uh, terror, you know, messing up my name, my character, my, my reputation. Um, so when I'm in there, I eat some of the bread. It's the first day, and I eat some of the bread. I'm like, okay, I had enough. You know, I probably ate four or five slices. It was pretty good bread, I should say. It was. And drank some water, and I'm sitting there in just the cell. Like, you know, they gave me, like, there was a little rack of about 10 or 12 books out there. I chose a book to read to pass the time. I'm going to be here for three days. My like, hey, you kidding me? Little tiny sale. Um, well, they came back in about five or ten minutes and to collect the bread I hadn't eaten. I didn't know I had to give it back. I'm thinking I'll just eat it throughout the night. So after a few slices, they came to take it back. I said, I'm not finished. They said, no, you don't get to keep it. I'm like, what? So they, now this night I'm starving, man. I'm starving in this. Uh, and, I, and I shouldn't stay starving because there's so many people who I have um, – that actually are starving in the world now and then, uh, now presently and back then, they really have nothing, not even that. And and you know, but at this time, I'm not thinking about that. I'm thinking I'm hungry. I'm very hungry, and I can't get any more bread until I don't know seven in the morning. It's probably five in the evening. Um, so I got smart. The next time they bought the bread, I had to save one of the bags, and then I would keep the bread and smash it. I started, I would smash it really, really flat, and, and tuck it under my 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 rack and this give me an empty bag um so then at night i'm in there like sneaking contraband i'm sneaking eating bread i just hoping no one sees it man but uh yeah so i get back and uh go to my ship and finish out those 45 days and you know what what one of the sad things was um, even before that that time i went to captain's mass you know they provide you a legal officer so uh, someone who's studying law that's on the ship to be your representative and i'm I've been telling them all these things even before those trials about, you know, the unfairness I'm facing, what's happening, how they're treating me. And he's like, oh, that's terrible. You know, we're going to do something about this. When you go to trial, we'll make sure the captain is aware of that. But when I went into the trial, my legal advisor was sitting right next to the captain on the panel as like one of the people to advise the captain. So it was it was a huge, huge disregard for my rights, man. Definitely something that was uh i don't know unforeseeable so i get out of the military i pack everything i own in my in my car and i'm heading home i get my wife and i decide to stop for a uh a drink it had been just a long while we stopped at the pool hall i just have on a pair of shorts and a tank top and uh we stop and 
play a game of pool and I, I give her my keys to go get some drinks because I don't have any pockets. And I come back with the drinks and I say, you ready? She said, yeah. I say, okay, where are my keys? She hesitates and goes, um, she looks around. I felt my heart just drop. I'm like, wait, wait, wait. So I rush outside. My car is gone, man. Everything I own in it. Everything, everything, except the tank top and a shirt on my back. Oh. And, uh, money i have money in there all my clothes equipment just everything everything i own everything man um sounds everything everything i own on this earth is in that car and i never got mad at her i just you know i've been through so much man and, and life and and it's just hey you got to keep going what can you do um we sit there and my car is gone what am i going to do I'm, I'm fresh out of the military in this bad situation i got a wife a daughter got to get a job um no, no clothes for an interview, and uh, I don't know, man. You can you can stop me at any time. <laughs> no, you're you're doing uh, you're doing really good. Um, I'd like to uh, have maybe a, a second interview where we can delve into more because uh, it just seems like you have more uh, to say. But. Um, in the meantime, let's uh, let's just skip ahead and let's talk about um, on watch TV. I'm curious okay. to know about All that. Right. All right, how about this? Let me let me let me give the audience a, a better ending to that portion. Of okay. Because okay. let me let me say this because it's important for educators today, people in general, how this changes. So this next day or so, I'm at our apartment after I lose my car and whatnot. And I'm watching television. And I'm watching a school board meeting. I, again, I don't, I don't know why. What young 20-something sits and watches a school board meeting on television of all places. But it's LA Unified, and for some reason, it's on channel 58. I think it's KLCS. I don't know. But uh, I'm watching, and I see a former high school teacher of mine. He's now a board member. He had been my speech and debate teacher in high school. And uh, it's a pretty cool guy. I, I, you know, he was very supportive in high school. And uh, I said, "Why is a board member?" I said, "I wonder if I can call him and maybe, you know, maybe he helped me find the job." I'm thinking, all, you know, all my resources that could help me find the job to be able to take care of my family. I got to, you know, do what I have to do. So I call him. I call up this his office, and he says, uh, "Hey, I remember you." He goes, "You were pretty serious in high school. You were different than the kids. You were pretty serious." And I was, remember, I was homeless and all these things. So I was very serious, very mature in high school. And uh, he goes, I told him what happened. He goes, uh, he says, uh, go downtown to speak to this person. I won't say her name. Uh, go downtown, speak to her, tell her I sent you. So I go and I speak to her and say, and she already knew I was coming. I barely had to interview, but just upon the reputation and the skill sets and what he knew about me was like a fit for this job. So I had a small interview and I was hired on the spot for uh, an LA Unified to be a uh, uh, instructional aide. And I ended up being a, it's like a tutor. I ended up working at uh, a mental health center where kids who were going into school to be, uh, to, I'm sorry, to go into the mental health center for mental health services, they had to keep up with their schoolwork. There's a teacher there and there's me and my job was to tutor them. And it was great. It, it was life changing. I loved that job. I would have done it for free. I told people I really would have. It was amazing, man. Um, and then the teacher would always leave the classroom, and I'd be there with all these high school students, and I have to, to teach. 
And so that's where my love of teaching came about. And um, eventually uh, I ended up not working there anymore because it, it was a great job, but it, it, it was part-time, just a few hours, and I needed more income to help my family. And I remember calling and telling uh, my supervisor, I says, you know, I uh, really love this job, but is there any way to get more hours? It, it wasn't. I said, I, I have to find a job with more hours. I said, I apologize. She says, no, no, don't worry about it. We're not going to, you know, you're not going to be let go. You should get the job that you need to do. And, you know, so technically I'm still an employee of LA Unified. I was never released, never quit. And I joke to say I may have some, some benefits there. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> um, I ended up, I ended up actually not getting back to college until I was 30. Um, and we, you know, we can start the the next episode there because from from that point of college, uh, that's when my, my the life my life the trajectory really went towards a, a realm of education, higher ed, entrepreneurship, etc. Um, from from that point um, up until from my twenties, I just you know worked to take care of my family, did all types of odd jobs, whether it was you know, tow truck driver and or pizza driver or or served as a bouncer and a bodyguard and. Did all types of things, worked in uh, uh, convalescent homes, custodian. I did all types of jobs, whatever I needed to do. I owned a, a small business once selling auto body parts. And then uh, one day, racism reared its ugly head and it propelled me to become the educator and entrepreneur I am today. So that that might be a great point to talk about. And, I, and hopefully I can come back and talk about all the rest after that, man. I would it's, love. It's a great story. I can't, I can't wait. I would love to hear that. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah. Tell me about uh, on watch TV. I'm I'm curious. Yeah. Oh, sure, sure. So so on watch TV came about um, as a as a part of a an outreach program I did for students in 2020. Um, I didn't mention it or uh, or tell you about it, but uh, when COVID hit in 2020, um, I was teaching high school seniors, and I had students that were working on their master's degree teaching at the university. And um, I felt bad for them. The schools are closed. There's no graduation. You're not going to have the ceremony that you've been hoping for. It's like March. They're they're so close, and they were really bummed out. You know, the, the high school students especially. And I decided that uh, I said, "Well, I'll do something for you. I, I don't know what I would do. Try to make your day bright. I'm always, you know, trying to be there for folks." Uh, and so they wanted me to do a freestyle rap. You know, because I've, I've always been a freestyle rapper since I was a kid, you know, since rapping began. Um, and so they knew that I did that. And But I would never rap for them. I thought, no, nah, I'm not, you know, because sometimes <laughs> I'll say bad words. It's hard sometimes for me not to, because it can be, a, you know, anyway. I agreed that I would do a freestyle rap for them, and that would be something that to make their day brighter. I ended up making up a freestyle rap um, that I did. And then I one night I started thinking, man, it's not just my students. It's all the students in uh the city across the state around the world it's not just seniors in high school it's you know my master's degree students and others are all these universities bachelor's and associate's degree eighth grade graduation it started to kind of not be overwhelming but it started to be a preponderance of my thoughts of how many people were affected yeah my kid lost out on uh graduation and prom as well for because of COVID. oh man i, I I got something for your kid, then I think I'm a, I got to get your kid something. I'll tell you why. So one night I'm sleeping in and all of a sudden my mind pops into my head. Instagram, like they instantly graduated. They're Instagrads, you know, and uh, sort of sounds like Instagram, but it's Instagram. And I said, Instagram, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use that. That's what I think started the freestyle. 
Um, so I started a program called Instagram 2020. Um, the initial program was um, I was doing shout outs um, online, like in a form like this, through uh, where we did Zoom meetings, but it was Instagram Live, Facebook Live, where I put on all my doctoral regalia. I sent out information across the country for people to say, hey, if you had a student that was going to graduate but didn't, send their name in. We'll give them a shout out. You know, We'll have a mock graduation online. So I had people from all across the country, around the world, sending in their names. And we had an online live event where I played the Pomp and Circumstance, which is the graduation ceremonial music. Mm -hmm. Had on my cap. I gave away prizes. I had T-shirts made um, with the Instagram logo, got the whole logo. Um, ended up doing merchandise, pillows and mugs and cups and blankets and all anything that you could think of that I could slap the logo on. I did that to raise money to support that program. All right. So I did that every month on the 20th of month for the year 2020. It was amazing, man. How many. And it was overwhelming because it was just me. How many kids that it affected and adults, you know, I had even kindergartners, you know, they, they have graduations. They don't know, but the parents look forward to it. Um, so I shouted out all those names. It was great. Did it every month. Gave away lots of prizes. If you were, if you lived in my town or any town, if you saw me in my Instagram truck, the Instagram mobile, I had the, the little logo put on the truck. I carried a gang of T-shirts. If you saw me, you got a T-shirt automatically just free, you know, to you. If you're an Instagram, I did the freestyle rap for them that, that first show. And uh, every 20th of the month, we had a ceremony where I shouted out names um, for people. Um, gave away lots and lots of prizes, man. Gift cards and cash and all type food cards all across the, the United States and around the world. As far as Papua New Guinea and in in uh, the Gambia and Africa, we had students calling. But man, I, I would have students calling me and and or not calling, but interacting with me in so much need, man. They you know they found out about it. And they were, I, I need a laptop. You know I want to go to college or I need a uh, clothes or food. And it became like wow, it's a lot of need. Um, but from that, someone saw it and offered to put it on their television channel um, on TV back in, uh, in Florida, somewhere in Florida. And um, then it turned into, hey, you could have your own TV channel. I thought, wow, I hadn't, it wasn't even on my list of things. And uh, so I said, okay. And we went through the process. I paid for the channel and all the costs and set up and whatnot. And I had the channel for about a year before I even put content on it because it's a social responsibility to me. You know, whatever messages that come from me, even as a teacher, I'm responsible for. So I'm very careful as far as what I put out and definitely with the media like television, what images are going to show because those are lasting and, and, and whatnot. Uh, so about a year later, I decided um, that I would uh, launch it. But that was after I said, man, I don't know much about this industry. Let me enroll in school and learn. So I enrolled in NYU film school to learn the craft. I started investing in equipment to record my own interviews of people and our own, my own footage and sort of, you know, did the YouTube university of, you know, microphone and audio and video and cameras. And, um, now I have this channel It's on uh, Roku and, uh, Amazon fire TV. We just expanded to another platform called Vita, which will be in another 168 countries, um, and, and various platforms there. Um, and there's a variety of content that you can go on and watch from movies to documentaries to shorts. Um, I just filmed a comedy show, the first on watch TV comedy show 
Um, on March 16th, we did that. We want to bring comedy to the channel. So it's a, uh, when I say mini Netflix, I mean a mini Netflix. Netflix is huge, you know. I may have about 60 titles, and there's a lot more that's coming on. We have a lot of projects that are in, in pre-production, some are in post-production, and, and a variety of people. I have students on there, or student, film school students who've done their first film, and it's on the channel, right? So wow. it's been an opportunity for me to provide an access point for creatives some who may never have thought they would be on TV or maybe couldn't afford it. Um, folks that don't want to deal with Hollywood types, you know, and that rigmarole. Um, and so it's, it's been a great way for me to continue in this service oriented uh, space that I've been in. Um, and yeah, so I'm actually uh, filming a, a few other things this month. There's, there's a pr projects ongoing. So we, we, we're looking forward to grow. I say we, there's only me, but you know, there's, people you know i have family i have people that that help out um but looking for the growth of it and, and to just see what it's gonna what it's gonna morph into and, and there's really only two parameters for anybody that wants to you know support you know definitely support only two parameters for being on, on watch tv number one no ratchetness right nothing ratchet you know i don't you know there's a lot of ratchetness in places and that's fine you know i can get down and dirty with the best i guess if i wanted to but that's not what I want on my channel because it's, it's so much everywhere else, you know, and that's not the influence that I want to have. So nobody's going to be twerking and dropping it low on the channel. That's not, you know, not against anybody who does or anybody who likes that, but that's just not going to be on the channel. Um, and then nothing that's demeaning, right? No demeaning of other cultures, right? You don't have to put one culture down to elevate yourself. And aside from that, I'm, I'm very open to the creative and artistic interpretations of individuals. I got a, a couple of things, and there's a, some a short film from France from a student, her first film, great show. Again, some features had folks who just had still pictures, man, taking very beautiful still pictures. One guy, I think he's in, uh, is he in Sweden? Uh, it's not. I got a guy from Sweden coming on too, but um, he just had some great photos, and I encouraged him. I said, you should put that to music. And let's put it on TV. Thought I can't do that. I said, sure you can. I own the channel. <laughs> we can do whatever we want. So he ended up putting some music to it, and it's a beautiful display of his skills. And and, and they were all done on a phone, uh, uh, on a cell phone. I don't want to give a shout out to the company until I get an endorsement. But <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it turned out great. So that channel is, is thriving, man. It's ongoing, and it's all about you know giving back and providing the space for for other folks. So. That's so amazing. Yes, it's uh, been awesome, we'll, man. We'll have to talk more about that because uh, uh, <clears throat> I have uh, I, I have a, a niece who's an artist, and I have uh, actually I have a uh, quite a few unfinished uh, pieces. I actually write for a living. Well, not for a living. Oh, nice. But nice. I write. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, uh, I get you. Tell me about uh, your nonprofit. Oh, sure. Score. So score is a nonprofit. You know, when, once I did Instagram, I, you know, that came, I would say, 98 percent out of my personal, you know, my money, my pocket, um, all the merchandise and, and all the banners and all the things that were given away. Um, and I say 98 uh, percent. Shout out to California Teachers Association. They ended up uh, making a, a small donation, um, which helped me to provide scholarships to uh, end up giving scholarships to seven students around the world, uh, five in the United States and, and two outside the United States at the end of that program in December. Um, but 
when I did that, I thought, you know, someone had told me before, you should have a nonprofit. And I thought, yeah, maybe I should. Um, and so I decided to start a nonprofit. It's called SCORE. It stands for Securing Communities of Racial Equity. And it's all about intervening to provide, you know, I don't want to sound so, well, I'll just say it this way, to provide, you know, to help support harmonious relations among ethnic groups and races and to eradicate the ill effects of racism in schools and cities. So it's about providing training and workshops for students, uh, for teachers that are going to work with diverse populations of students to help them be able to intervene, not only with themselves and their relationship with students, but understanding how to intervene with students from different backgrounds who may not um, be able to coexist because they have a lack of knowledge of self and society and, and history or whatever. Um, training uh, civic leaders, anyone in any situation where the effects of racism have reared its ugly head, you know, SCORE is really about providing training, access, and, and making our communities better. Because ultimately, <clears throat> no matter the color of our skin or our ethnicity, we want similar things, man. We want safe schools, clean water, good food, safe neighborhoods. And oftentimes people get confused when they don't have it because it's easy to blame someone else. And who better to blame than someone that doesn't look like you? you know, if that group wasn't there or that person wasn't there, it's their fault. And, and none of that is really true. There's other other things that that, uh, that, that cause that. So it's, it's about education and training and providing good, safe spaces, man, for people. So that's what SCORE is about. We just... Um, and, and it's interesting you ask that because the first scholarship I uh, put forward with SCORE, I have a scholarship for struggling students. And it goes, it ties right into me in high school. You know, I was struggling uh, academically because I was homeless and I had to work and I was falling asleep uncontrollably. But I was a smart kid. And so all those teachers that gave up and didn't invest or ask questions, I imagine, and, you know, through my couple of decades of teaching high school now, I see students in those same situations. So I'm always cognizant and aware of, of that. So I'm always asking students when they sleep, are you okay? The first thing I'm asking, are you okay? You know, are you working late at night? A lot of things go on. So many students that struggle, man, it's not because it's a behavior issue, but I often see it being, you know, turned into punishment. It's punishment that they receive instead of empathy. <clears throat> so I decided with this scholarship that I was going to start it for students that struggle. As a matter of fact, you have to have a 1.5 GPA or lower to qualify. And I know when I say that people initially thought I was rewarding failure and how can you reward students with these low GPAs? Because I was one at one point, but I wasn't incompetent. I wasn't capable. I needed some intervention. I needed some, some inspiration, some motivation, engagement, just some support, maybe a kind word. So with this scholarship, um, the way it works is not about rewarding failure. It's about incentivizing excellence. So how it works, if you have a 1.5 GPA or lower on your report card, you can apply. Um, there's a prompt. This year's prompt <clears throat> was how can teaching and learning about black history be beneficial for everyone? And that came about because of, <clears throat> excuse me, there were some folks thinking that that's just for black people to learn and it's not useful. You know, there's been a, a push for ethnic studies and there's this whole racial divide about these things. And I wanted people to see that history is history. So that was the prompt. Um, there were nine ways that you could enter. You didn't have to just write an essay. You could do a podcast episode about it, an original short film, original spoken word or song. You could do a community action uh, event where you get the community involved around this question. Um, there are a, a, a variety of ways to enter. 
if you win, you get half the money right there. And the other half, if at the end of the year, you have no more Fs on your report card, you get the rest. So the idea is that you are able, as students, they're able to see themselves in spaces where they're being excellent. They're able to be recognized for their excellent excellence and incentivized. And once they have that evidence that they can do it, the idea is that, you know, you'll continue on. The next year you come back, you've already shown to yourself and others you can do it. You know, there should be a different attitude about yourself and the teachers and those that are, are involved to be able to not see you as deficient, but maybe in need. And there's a difference. <clears throat> so that's where it came from. And uh, this is his first year. It's, it's, it's funny. I had to turn down a student. They had a 2.5 GPA. And I thought, man, I feel so bad. But that's just not the parameter that we're working with. Um, because, you know, I, I'm, I'm in classes and I hear the scholarships announced all the time. And students with lower scholarships, they don't even look up from the table when they hear a scholarship announced because it's not reserved for them. Um, and it should be a reward for, you know, 4.0, 3.0. That's great. But again, there's a lot of students that struggle. That does not mean they have a behavior issue. It doesn't mean they're not capable. And we need to do a better job to reach out to those students to help elevate them as opposed to discarding them to what, whatever ills or issues that are already consuming them. So that's, that, that's uh, that really one of the great That really speaks score. big to me. Um, just give you a little rundown on, uh, on my show. We're trying... Well, one of our main things is to end teenage suicide because it's happening way mm. too often and from all different races. Um, and I just... Every case that we go through, it, it gets sadder and sadder and we're just... So our thing is to raise awareness and at the same time, raise accountability because I think they go hand in hand. Um, we have the governments of the world, schools, police, employers, they all run away from the accountability. They don't want anything to do with it. So that really speaks to me. Um, I'm actually working on a nonprofit myself. Maybe we'll talk about that off air. Uh, sure. I, I, this honestly, when I started this podcast, um, it's like all these doors are opening for me. I've got so many other things that I want to accomplish, and I did not know that the podcast was just going to open all these doors. I would have started this podcast years ago. Right. right. <laughs> Speaking of podcasts, let's talk about yours. Let's chew the gum. How did you start it? How is it going? How long has it been on? And, <clears throat> and what's the general uh, consensus of the podcast? Sure. Well, let's chew the gum. Um happened i don't want to say by chance but maybe it seems that way i was um i was teaching a course at the university um i can't remember which course i was teaching but i was driving down and i was you know i'd usually drive and i'll record my thoughts you know on for for whatever you know i do a little stand-up comedy sometimes so i'll record my thoughts or maybe it's an idea and so that i don't forget i have my phone always there not not holding it while i'm driving right it's <laughs> <laughs> so no holder but i'll record so this day i was i was just driving down doing my thing. And I would happen to be chewing gum because it's been something that I, I used to do when I played sports um, because it gives me focus and it helps me to regulate my breathing pattern when I'm chewing gum and I can concentrate really well. So when I started teaching that course that night, I forgot that I didn't take my gum out. 
Um, and about halfway through the lecture, I, I was, you know, you're not supposed to chew gum and talk, they say. Halfway through the lecture, I'm like, oh, man, I have gum. And I'm turning around to get a, a tissue to take it out. And I say, I apologize. I forgot that I was chewing gum. And the students were like almost 100% saying, no, nah, it's okay. We don't care. We don't mind. The lecture's going great. This is a great class. And I said, okay, well, then let's chew the gum. There's the name. That's how I started, right? Um, and so let's chew the gum is sort of like people will say, let's chew the fat, which means let's talk. So it's let's chew the gum. And, and so um, I started that, that podcast. I went out and got some equipment. I never had the idea of doing a podcast, but I thought, ah, I looked up. What do I need? And went and got my audio interface and this, that, or the other. And uh, I just um, thought, you know, it'd be a great way to talk about topics that, that I want to talk about to give people an opportunity to express ideas. Um, I'm in season, just started season five. I just did the first episode of season five uh, last week. Um, so there's about 65 episodes of it. Um, and uh, it's a it's like a variety talk show. You know, one of my taglines is the podcast where we talk about everything from A to Z while we chew the gum. And so I've had folks on there where we've talked about the history of music. I've had uh, folks who are drug counselors, um, social workers. I've had um, uh, politicians, uh, folks that are running for office to come and talk about their ideas. I've had um, uh, shows about um, various forms of art and, and artistic impression. One of the shows um, that I did, as a matter of fact, it was uh, so good, not because of me, but because of the guests, that it was picked up to be a part of the curriculum at a couple of universities in Florida where folks are required to listen to that episode of the podcast as a part of this uh, curriculum, which is great. Um, I've done history of music. There's, there's, there's a lot. Um, we did, you know, social issues like, you know, people's feelings of going back to school with COVID when that happened. So I had one episode where I talked with uh, parents, one with teachers, um, one with um, other individuals involved in education. Um, so it's, it's been a, a variety of, of shows, man. And, and it's going great, man. Um, I, um, I look forward to, to having hosts all the time. And it's, uh, it's a great way to communicate and, and just uh, learn about others and, and um, share with the world. And where can people find your podcast? So they can find a podcast. You can listen on the Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, Spotify, Anchor, uh, Spreaker, Podbean, um, I up, also upload them to YouTube. So I always say on my show, you know, anywhere where fine podcasts are downloaded, where you find major podcasts, it'll be there. You can search Let's Chew the Government and you'll find it. And, and please do, you know, give a list. I'm always open to feedback. I love when, you know, audience members will email me at Let's Chew the Government gmail.com. Um, I'm always open to show ideas. If folks want to be on the show, I'm very open to it. Well, that's awesome. I've had such an amazing time uh, uh, talking and with you and hearing your story, and uh, hopefully we can do this again real soon. Yeah, that'd be great. I look forward to it, man. I give you the, the rest of these stories. I, I don't want your audience to have the incomplete. It gets good. I'm actually, uh, there's, there's a movie about all of this already in production, so nobody don't go and steal my story. I'll, I'll get you. I'll sue you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for uh, coming on. Um, and that's going to do it for today. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate the time. It was, it was great. Look forward to doing more. Have a great day. All right. Peace, people. Bye. Bye.